So our moderator asked me not to read her whole bio. Feel free to go to our website and read it. Most of you in the room know her already, know that her family is a fierce advocate for education, that she's been a mother, a teacher, and uh, involved in LISC for a number of years in the Chicago public school system. So when you think of education, you think of stains. And so there's no better person to actually talk about today's issues, which we've already said we know will probably bleed into a series. Um, than, than Robin Staines. I'm not going to introduce the other folks on the panel. I'm so excited to have them here, but I'm going to come down so that she can come up. Robin? I'm good. Hello, hello. My only regret, it's wonderful to see you all, is I was thinking maybe the bar should have been open because there's some, there's some tough news coming. So it is there. You could go and ask on your way out. But one of these days we're going to do this. We have a shot at every table. Um, I think you all know that I think it's important that we focus on what we can get done, but that you got to do that from an understanding of what we're dealing with. And for that, you've got to be willing to be honest and you've got to be clear-eyed and you've got to Got to tell it like it is. This has been an unprecedented few years that we have lived through, and the pandemic is one of those reasons. It's not the only one. Enormous amount of violence, George Floyd's death, the aftermath, the reckoning uh, around race, inequity, injustice, world events. There's been a lot that has been hitting families and communities and systems of all kind. So the question we're here to look at today is... How are we doing? How are our students doing and how are our systems doing? And this is something that Advance Illinois looks at every other year. We put out something called the state we're in because we think it's really important to have data in front of us so that we're making informed decisions at every level, whatever that data may tell us. Um, and that's harder to come by right now. We this uh, The last few years have botched up what we've got available. So we usually would have come out last year. We simply didn't have good, reliable data. We still don't have all the stuff that we would usually be reporting out to you, but we have enough to start to unpack what things look like in the wake of the last few years. think it's critically important we have it in front of us. And so here we are. We will be back with future reports as more data on other critical elements of work come forward. So you're not done with us. So series, there you go. We'll have more. I want to pause to thank the people who made the report um, happen. First of all, we always have an advisory council that helps us. We had a brainy group of practitioners, research wonks, policy experts, super amount of help from our agencies. Thank you so much for all of your help putting this together. Any mistakes in the presentation now are mine, but they did a bang-up job, and I wouldn't, it wouldn't be right if I didn't thank the team. Taryn Williams on the team who project managed all of this, and there were a lot of moving pieces. You, Carol Juarez, who helped make sure that we got the word out. Um, Sherry J. Innocent and uh, Jessica Ramos for uh, work on focus groups. The policy team led by Ann Whalen with special mention for Mercedes Wentworth Nice. This is a huge undertaking to get this data under normal circumstances, and right now with the amount of data wonkiness, a particular effort. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So I just want to set the stage, just remind ourselves as if we need it. This was, we are coming out of a massive and deadly disruption in our lives. Just in Illinois alone, three and a half million folks um, and 34,000 deaths from COVID-19. Huge economic dislocation, not only in Illinois, but around the country. Um, so the, the health and the toll have been profound, as you're going to see from this, but I think you all know coming in, that disruption was not experienced evenly. It was felt in every corner of the state. Very few families were unscathed. 
That said, it was not experienced evenly. And it would be wrong not to begin this, and we have it throughout the report. Time doesn't permit me to go into each and every one of them, but look for it. This is one of the many reasons I encourage you to look at your report. Heroic efforts at all levels to try to meet needs under circumstances that nobody knew. Remember back in the day, we thought, oh, it's going to be a few weeks. And how you pivot and what you do when you think it's going to be a few weeks is different than when you think it's going to be a few months than when you realize, oh, my God, we're in this for a much longer haul. And just a huge amount of applause and credit for the people at the local level, the state level for leaning in in some big ways, the federal government coming through with badly needed resources and beyond. Because it could have been as terrible as it's been, could have been worse. So um, I am going to ask you, so now we're going to look at what actually happened you all have at your seats a copy of the report. I know you're going to read it many times over. It's going to sit next to your bed. It's going to be your reference material for the next few years. But I'm actually going to encourage you to play along at home. I'm going to give you page numbers because it's a lot of data. It, it may be hard to read from the back. So I just want to make sure that for every data point I share, there's more in here. And I really want to encourage you and draw your attention to it. So onward. So first things first, what happened to enrollment? And it ain't pretty. Enrollment declined at virtually every level, um, and it declined in significant ways and in ways that are, we're going to be dealing with for a very long time to come. Let's start with early childhood. Please look at pages 8 to 11, because what I show you here, you're going to want to unpack, which is all major programs went down. The larger, more significant programs dropped significantly. You're talking over 20% drop in enrollment of our, of our youngest learners. Um, and I think that's what you can see here just on those numbers, whether you absorb it all or not, down, down, down. But it's a couple things that you should know. One, it affected the younger the child was, the more likely they were to disappear from a program. So in our three and a four-year-old preschool, we lost more three-year-olds. In our birth to five programs, we lost more birth one, two-year-olds. It more deeply affected our black children and our Latinx students. And it also more deeply affected children from low-income households. Again, when you think about how foundational these years are and you think about the opportunities and the care and the exposure that was missed, that is going to follow children. That's something we're going to have to come to grips with going forward. If you look at K-12, we're going to unpack all of this with our panel, so I know I'm moving quickly. If you look at K-12, that enrollment, too, dropped significantly in the 2020-2021 school year. And I just want to put this, questions that I heard along the way. Well, is that just, you know, we were losing enrollment anyway. Isn't it just more of the same? No. Different in kind than what we've been seeing. Well, can it be explained by outmigration? No, it cannot be explained by outmigration. Well, did kids just leave and go to private schools? No, they did not leave and go to private schools. In fact, private school enrollment their rate of decline was actually greater than in the public schools. It's possible that some of those kids are being homeschooled. The truth is we don't do a good job of collecting all that information and bringing it up to the state level. We don't know. So there's a lot of students, tens of thousands of students, who we aren't 100% certain where they've gone, but the easy answers don't explain it. The other thing in K-12, just like in early childhood, is it more deeply affected our youngest learners. So if you look here from the left to the right, that's kindergarten, elementary, middle, and high school, you can see the steepest declines in our youngest grades. Kindergarten in particular, huge hit. And again, this, this is foundational. There are skills, both academic, social, emotional, and otherwise, that kids are building then that play, pay off over the years. The good news is you can see that high school attendance held much steadier. So that part is good. 
Um, uh, when you get into post-secondary, undergraduate enrollment decreased substantially, particularly in community colleges. Look at that. Nearly a 14% drop in our community college population. You can see that the four-year institutions held steady. You even see a gain at four-year four for-profits. But a couple of things to be aware of here. Undergraduate enrollment, it's good. It increased the other bit of good news. Retention rates in our four-year universities also went up. So the kids who were there stayed and stayed at greater numbers. Yay, that is good. Not such good news. We really lost ground with black and Latinx students, particularly in community colleges, which we've been making progress. It's critically important that we do so. That was a real blow. However, in the four-year space, Latinx students actually grew their enrollment in four-year institutions. Another bit of good news. Um, black students also did, though that was primarily concentrated at for-profit, so we're going to need to better understand what was going on there. So enrollment, big hit. It's important that you understand. That was a lot of information, so let me summarize two things. One, profound impacts, but they varied by age, by geography, by race, by income, and it was not experienced evenly. And one thing I missed here, but you'll see in your notes, in K-12, the biggest drop, historically, we, we tend to lose more students from our urban areas. During COVID, we lost more students from rural areas, and we lost more white students. It's not necessarily what you expect. So the other reason I think it's important that you dig into this and pay attention is that some of the things you think happened did, and some of the things you think happened didn't. The second thing it's important for you to know is we're not bouncing back. It may be like, well, it was COVID, it was bad, but, you know, surely things are getting back to normal, kids are coming back. No. We saw an additional declines in our K-12 enrollment this year. We saw additional declines in community college. They were less, so that's good, but it continued to decline. There have been a little bit of a, um, preliminary good news. Some of the um, early childhood programs are starting to get back to pre-pandemic levels, but our largest programs, we still don't know. So we're, we're waiting on tenor hooks on that. All right. Next. What happened to the actual instruction? So the kids who made it, the kids we've got, what did the world look like for them? And I think you all know that coming into COVID, there were pretty significant disparities in the kinds of supports, the kind of access, and the kind of outcomes that we're seeing um, across lines of race and income and geography, uh, language and learning style. And the danger here is that that just got significantly worse. Why do I say that? couple things. First of all, I want you to take a look on page 21 to 23. I told you I'd tell you numbers and I forgot. Pages 21 to 23. So whip ahead, 21 to 23. If you see the dark blue, those are kids who are learning primarily remotely and the lightest um, on the right-hand side are kids who are learning primarily in person. Look at how different that is. 85, 86% of black and Latinx students were learning primarily remotely in 2021 and only half of white students were. And the reason that matters, in addition to a lot of other things, you're going to see later how that correlates to academic outcomes, but it also matters because we had disparities going in in terms of digital access, and the state really leaned in. This is one where at the local level and the state level, we really tried to get more devices and more access, And but there were still disparities, and the disparities were in exactly the same populations that were most likely to be in remote. So again, that's going to have consequences we're going to need to attend to for some time to come. Another consequence that we saw is, so again, with the kids who were there, what did we see in terms of attendance? Chronic absenteeism is one of the best predictors we have for how kids are going to do later in their educational career. So when you see high chronic absenteeism numbers, you worry. And when they grow, you worry. Overall, during the pandemic, when, when honestly... We had very lax and, and, and wild and woolly rules about what counted as attendance because what's attendance in remote? I mean, it's, it's, it was a brand new world. 
So even under those more expanded notions of attendance, it grew by 3%. And if you look here, starting on the left, it grew most significantly in the younger grades, huge jump in our middle school population. It also grew disproportionately according to race, according to income. So you see bigger jumps in chronic absenteeism among the very students that we most need to be making up ground with. Again, it's going to have consequences that we need to pay attention to going forward. And then finally, we issue something called the Five Essential Survey, where we get feedback from students and teachers. It's a resource-based instrument. It's been around for decades. It's a really good predictor of school achievement and success over time. It gives us a window into the academic rigor and press that was going on in classrooms. You can see the state has been improving on this, and it took a huge nosedive down during remote. Doesn't surprise me, and this is with no criticism. You've got people in the field trying to teach under circumstances nobody ever expected to teach without the materials, the resources, the training, the time and their own bandwidth, as they were probably trying to homeschool children of their own. So, But it's a reality, and it's one we need to come to grips with, because again, it has implications for what we need to do to make sure kids are okay going forward. So that's the academic, what kids had access to. More about the outcomes in a minute. The other thing that we took a look at that I know is top of mind for everybody, I think this was top of mind for everybody coming into COVID, but it's even more top of mind now. I don't think anybody misses that it matters that students learn how to socialize. They know how to engage with the world and that their mental health matters in terms generally, let alone in terms of their ability to learn. Student well-being took a savage blow and the need for resources is going up and up and up. So what does that look like? We did focus groups, Sherry J, thank you. We did focus groups. We talked to, to students and, par- and teachers around the, um, and parents around the state. And one of the things that we heard was this is unlike anything else. And again, you've got several quotes in your um, report and that is on page 33. I am not, I'm getting like a D minus in telling you about page numbers. 33, you've got several of these. But just listen to what this one teacher um, has to say, which is, and this is about a high school student. You know, they are, oh shoot, I did the small one. They are struggling. They are, they're like 10 year olds. They simply haven't had a chance to build the skills. They don't know how to engage with others. We're just not, and, and as a result, one of the things I'm sure many of you are hearing out in your communities is just the level of disruption, the level of violence, the level of challenges at the school level are unprecedented. In the teeth of that, the state has been working really hard. And one of the things I'm proud of, Advanced Illinois, we always report on this. This isn't available anywhere else, but in our report every other year, what are the number of counselors, social workers, and psychologists we should have at the school level, and how many do we have? And what you want in the elementary grade is you want one counselor for every 450 students, and you want one for every 250 at high school. That's the, those are the black bars are telling you what we aspire to as a state, what's good for kids under normal circumstances, which these are not. So you can imagine that what we need is even more than that. And you can see that the state is making progress. That is no question in my mind that is due to the fact that we have been sending more dollars out to the schools that need it most, and this has been a priority for, for, for so yay, evidence-based formula. Will Davis, Lightford, Representative Ammons, take a bow, Representative Musman. But it's not good enough, because the numbers are still, the ratios are still twice what they should be, twice what they should be at a time when the needs have just gone up. So we've got work to there. But here's a bright spot, and I promised I would, would do that when I could. That same five essential surveys, one of the other things that we get feedback in is how supportive is the environment, both for teachers as well as for students. And that went up. Under unbelievably challenging circumstances, with everything working against them, students and teachers reported that they felt more support, they felt heard, they felt that, um, that energy to try to make sure that they were okay. So that's something to celebrate.
Academic outcomes. I'm sorry this isn't black. That was actually not intentional, though, though it's not good news. And I, before I flip ahead and show you, and before I even tell you that it's on page 37 and 38, is the information here is very preliminary. We do have data from the end of the year statewide assessments from last year. Um, but as Dr. Ayala would be one of the first to tell you, there were a lot of kids who were unable to sit. Remember, a lot were in remote. And we had, literally, I think it's just half of our black students were able to take that exam. So these are not a full picture of where our students are, but it's a beginning window. And you can expect that some of the news coming down um, may be even rockier based on those remote students um, who we weren't able to hear from. So this is... The one we're sharing here is these are our math scores. And so you can see proficiency drop profoundly, particularly among our youngest students. That's a drop from 41% proficiency. And you should know, we didn't do as much historical. It's in the back. You've got data tables in the back, which will give you a sense of where we've been over time. We had been making progress as a state on the levels of academic proficiency. Go team. Obviously, a huge body blow to that here. These are significant drops. So again, is this the way it's going to be? Are we going to be able to bounce back? Not without a lot of concerted effort. We've got implications to come. A couple of other things that are worth your knowing is that the State Board of Education partnered with the Illinois Workforce Education and Research Collaborative, which is a new statewide research group, to look at what's the correlation between your learning modality and the kind of progress you made. And what they saw is that the more time you spent remote, the bigger those drops were. Not an indictment. We'll unpack it during the panel. I think of decisions which were made based on district needs, experiences, et cetera. But again, a reality we're going to have to deal with um, going forward. And the other thing I'll note that it's in pages 37 to 38 is our high school graduation rates held steady. I'm wrapping. Our high school graduation rates held steady, which is great. But our freshmen on track rates, which tell us what our graduation rates are going to look like in a few years, drop significantly. So again, more reasons to say we've got work to do to make sure that we not only prevent further declines, but are able to get kids back on track. So I'm going to wrap it up and bring our panel up. You know this. This data underscores this pandemic has been felt widely across every piece of our B20 system, but it was not experienced evenly. We are going to have particular work to do across lines of race income, geography, language, learning style. There is a lot of work left to be done. The point of this is to be information, not a policy document. Doesn't mean we don't have a lot of ideas that we'll be following up with. And I'll just leave you with a couple of high-level conclusions, though you've drawn them yourself, with a lot of investments still to come. We have got to ride this out past the point where federal support is in place because the need, as you can see, is going to outlast that. And we are going to have to do massive things around enrollment. There's some good work underway I think will come out in the panel. We're going to have to monitor and address these academic and social um, realities that our kids are dealing with. We're going to have to make sure that we are getting the resources out to districts and care facilities and universities to provide that support. And we should have a learning agenda. We should learn from this. We cannot simply go back to business as usual, period, full stop. It's not going to be good enough. So But to help me unpack that are three people who have brimming with not only ideas, but the kind of passion and energy that the state needs always, but certainly needs right now. So I'm going to ask them to come up, and I'm going to introduce them in turn. I'm going to start with Dr. Carmen Ayala. She really doesn't need introduction. She's our state superintendent, um, and she is one. Of, she's a long-standing <laughs> educational leader, public servant. 
started her work with young children. There's nothing she hasn't done. And she has closed achievement gaps in Berwyn when she was superintendent in a way that very few districts in the entire country can boast. She is the real deal in every possible way. So Dr. Ayala, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it. Dr. Janice Jackson also really needs no introduction, um, but she is not only, everybody knows she was the CEO of CPS. I think she likes everybody to know she's also a public school parent. She's been a teacher. She's been a principal. There's nothing this woman has not done. I think she'd want you to know she is a proud alum of Chicago State. I think she'd want you to know she's a proud alum of the UIC EDD program. I think most importantly, she'd want you to know she's now working at Hope Chicago to try and get scholarships to post-secondary students. You'll hear more from her that. No. The one thing she'd want you to know even more than that is that she is now a member of the Advanced Illinois Board. So, I know, it's really the crowning achievement of her career. Um, and then and then last but very much not least, Representative Michelle Musman, who is who is a long-standing champion of children. This is an issue that she cares deeply about. She's the state representative for the 56th District, if you know where that is. Good for you! Um, it does include South Grove Village, Hanover Park, etc. But what you also would want to know about her is that she chairs the appropriations, um, elementary and secondary um, appropriations for human services, curriculum and instruction. She's in the mix. She's part of leadership. She also, one of the things I love to share is that her husband is a high school teacher. U.S. history, which is also something I taught, so we have that in common. She also has three young adult children, though hers are all boys, mine are all girls. And the thing to know about her is that she's an extraordinarily kind, warm human being and so sometimes you miss that she's got a backbone of steel. So, all right. So, ladies. I love that I just get to say ladies. Yeah. We have, I know, nice, right? So, there's a lot to unpack here. I had to whip through this, but you guys I know have read it at more leisure. So, we're going to have a chance to get into um, some of what surprised you, some of the ideas that we might be able to tackle going forward and what's going to be involved. But let me start, Janice, with you. Mm-hmm. As somebody who's been in the field, you were in, C- you were in CPS as this was uh, getting started. Yeah. What worries, for this data and your experience, what worries you most as you look ahead? Mm-hmm. What do you think is the data point we should be paying attention to that worries you most? Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, first of all, thanks for allowing me to be on the panel. And I think Robin knows the angrier I get, the more productive I am. And so when I look at data like this, it is very sobering. And, and my first reaction is anger. Um, but we can't sit in that space. We actually have to move forward. And I think there are a bunch of things we need to pay attention to. But I, I think there are two places I would go. First, um, we have to look at um, getting students in school as soon as possible. So the enrollment issues in pre-K are incredibly alarming. We don't want to lose ground with the students who were um, able to take advantage of that, who may be in middle school or high school now. But I think we need to get students back in school. Um, Jackie was asking, where are these students? They're at home. And we need to get them back in, into school as soon as possible. I think the other thing that wasn't discussed here today, but I know Advance pays a lot of attention to, is we have to deal with the talent issue. We don't have enough teachers. We don't have enough principals. We don't have enough superintendents. We don't have enough qualified educators to do the work that needs to be done in order to recover from what has happened during this pandemic. And so, you know, the best laid plans, all the money from Washington is not going to solve the issue around talent. Um, And I know everybody here who works in a school system or supports a school system directly knows that that's a huge issue on the horizon. And it's only gotten worse due to the pandemic and the conditions that people were, you know, forced to work under. 
it's a huge issue. We, we do usually cover it, mm -hmm. and we are hopefully going to be coming back to you in a few months with more information on that, so yes. stay tuned. It is absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dr. Ayala, let me turn to you and ask the state, wow, what a time you started just a little bit. I, I, don't, I can't even make eye contact with you when I think I about jobs. I feel so bad. Um, when I think about the number of curveballs that you had to deal with, and I think you know on a personal level how much I admire um, how you pivoted and how you led and um, all of your efforts on that. And we're going to talk about problem solving, but I want to start just, you had to try to respond in the moment to situations nobody had seen. What are you proudest of? What do you look back on? You're like, God, thank God we did that. I really think that made, that, that made a critical difference that the rest of us should know about. One of the things that I'm most proud of is <clears throat> the stakeholder engagement that the Illinois State Board of Education has really um, heightened and leveraged throughout the entire pandemic. Uh, we still put forward a strategic plan and we adjusted that strategic plan to really take a look at the pandemic. Back then we were thinking, oh, this will be over in a month, but here we are. Um, but we really um, leveraged um, the stakeholders. We had lots of conversations with the field, with educators, with leaders, with advocates, with stakeholders. And I think that today we have a much more greater relationship with all of our stakeholder groups than we've ever had. And that's something that I'm very proud of. And I'm very proud of the state board staff um, who really uh, just went out of their way to try to address the many questions, the many curveballs, as Robin says, the opportunities around the corner that were lurching. Um, and we together got through. So I think that that's something that we should all feel really good about because we got through and, and are getting through still. Um, we're doing it together. I'll be back on a few more. Representative uh, Musman. Do you think, first of all, is this consistent with what you're seeing and hearing in your district? And I think secondly and importantly, and we're all going to be interested, this is, this is a long-haul problem. And Springfield isn't always great at long-haul problems. Do you think that there is sufficient understanding? Do you think that there's sufficient will? Do you think Springfield has what it takes to do some hard things for the next few years to get us? And I didn't say few. The next, I think it's 5, 10, 15 years. So I would absolutely say this is consistent with what we're seeing across all of our districts. I mean, certainly, as, as, as we've talked about, there is a personnel shortage at every single level. You know, we, we have schools that they, they don't have bus drivers. You don't have bus drivers. You don't have paraprofessionals. Uh, you don't have regular classroom teachers. Uh, there is, you know, I toured a school yesterday that, that talked about the significant pressure for their teachers and that they're seeing record numbers of retirements and a lot of insecurity among their current staff. Um, so that is definitely something that we need to address. I think, I think we have a number of unknowns about the state's future, right? A lot hinges on the outcome of the election. Should there be change in the administration, there will be a lot of change to core positions up and down and all over the administration. And those are people who are going to be coming in fresh, wanting to bring their own ideas, wanting to start all over. If Governor Pitzker uh, comes back in as the incumbent, I think you're going to be able to see some more continuity and a carry on of things that have already been established and professionals that are already serving in our agency roles. And I think that will help lay a really good foundation for 
wanting that long-term work. You're going to have a number of new representatives and senators that are going to need to be educated very rapidly on all of this because they simply just didn't have this kind of background in whatever private life that they had. And you're going to need to make sure that your incumbents who are returning, again, they've already got a bit of a foundation here, but that they are super educated so that they can really be the role models and lead the way on what we want to go forward with. So there's a lot of work to be done. So, well, we're always fans of getting more information out there. So I, I, it can only help. I, I want to come back. Um, you know, Janice, you mentioned enrollment. I'm going to start with you, um, Dr. Allen, then I'm going to come to you, Dr. Jackson. The state clearly is taking that seriously. So there's a big, we got love. There's some efforts to really try to bring some of our littlest um, <laughs> learners and children back in. What do you think it's going to take, Dr. Ayala? I mean, and, and, and what's a realistic expectation um, for getting back to something that we can feel good about? That's a tough one, Robin. Um, I think that uh, we have invested in uh, $12 million, uh, have been invested in our regional offices of education specifically to add additional staff that will be helping school districts uh, with truancy, with uh, finding children. Uh, we are just launching um, a an enrollment campaign for preschool and kindergarten, uh, which is just getting started, um, and it's available in both English and in Spanish. Uh, we want to make sure that we reach as many families as we possibly can. Uh, there are also apps that we're putting out for families so that they can uh, get information. Um, and so I think that the enrollment piece is going to be at the school level, at the district level, at the regional level, at the state level, everything that we possibly can to do that child find, if you will, child find in a general sense, and really working with our parents and letting them know what are all of the resources that we do have available in our schools um, as a result of the pandemic. I want to remind everyone that there have been over $7 billion that have been allocated to schools across the state specifically to address um, issues of the pandemic. And so there are resources out there um, so that schools can tap into um, to begin to offer uh, to our families. And so I, I know we'll talk a little bit more about um, some of those initiatives, but I think that real focus on enrollment, on finding the children, and on re-engaging them to the schools and letting the parents and the families know these are the resources that we have available today it's more about the whole child. Mm -hmm. We can't address the academics if we don't address the whole child and those basic needs and establishing those relationships. And so I think those are some of the ways that we're going to help bring back children uh, to our schools. So Janice, let me ask you, getting children back is part of it. Mm -hmm. You can't do anything until you get them in the building. But I think these transitions are clearly going to be significant, right? So you're going to have kids starting kindergarten who didn't have as much exposure and engagement. You're going to have kids going on to high school um, that, again, middle school, we saw really significant disruptions there. Kids going on to post-secondary, um, A, we need to get them back there. But when they do, they're not going to come with the same sort of readiness. In, in What can districts do? This is something you are deeply knowledgeable about, and there are going to be a lot of people going to see this. What can districts do to help smooth those transitions, and again, realistically, how long is this going to take? 
Yeah. Well, I agree with you. This is definitely a 15, 20 year problem. This is a concern for every student that's a part of this generation that has been educated during the pandemic. And I don't care where you are on the spectrum. I think the first thing I did want to add regarding enrollment is we shouldn't discount the importance of community-based organizations as well. That is really going to help us in Chicago in particular. And, you know, I know in CPS, we we utilize them a lot and and would encourage us to do even more. Um, And that's an opportunity to use those ESSER dollars. But they really have the connectivity and working with other agencies to, like, see students because they may not be coming to school, but they're going to the doctor. They're going to other places. So how do we use that data in one place to see who's disengaged from school and get them back enrolled. As far as academics, I just want to double click on one of the recommendations you have, which is that we do need a learning agenda. I think I have a lot of critiques, which I am not going to rehash on this stage today, but one of them is, I know, but the, (laughs) the biggest one for people who know me, you know, it always goes back to academics for me because it just has to. I can't, our kids lose when we don't pay attention to academics. And I think we need a plan for how we recover. Things are just different now. Um, One example I'll share is a friend of mine who teaches third grade and, you know, bought into, you know, everything CPS said you should be doing. These are the standards. This is what students need to do at third grade. But then she was met with her first group of students that hadn't been in a classroom ever or some of them may have gone to preschool. So is it the same curriculum and standards that we laid out, or do we have to make sure students know how to write their name? Do we have to make sure that we teach basic literacy skills and and make sure they're familiar with the things that they need to, to know in order to access the curriculum? And so teachers have a heavy burden, and everybody shows up wanting to do a good job, but the, the expectations have to be clearly outlined. And I don't think we have that. And that starts at the top. I think the Department of Education has done a really good job getting money out, the state as well, getting money directly to schools. But one of my concerns is that there's been little guidance on how to spend it. And most school systems prioritized um, positions, which you know may or may not be a good thing. But if we know we have a talent issue and you can't fill them, what you end up having is a bunch of resources that aren't being expended. And if you're following that, people aren't spending the money. And so that's because they don't know how to spend it. And so I think that that's the biggest issue. What have we learned? What has changed? What do we need to do differently going forward? And and people need advice and training on how to do that. And if you speak to anyone who's working directly in schools, they will tell you they don't have that. So they're figuring it out the best way they know how. Um, And some good things are going to come out of that. Innovation happens in a space like that, but that's going to be rare. Most people are just going to wing it and try to figure it out. And then we'll continue to see the repercussions of that, unfortunately. I appreciate that. I will do one little commercial that... Um, when uh, when Carmen talks about bringing stakeholders together, that there is a learning renewal uh, report. The Boston Consulting Group, which is in the House, helped facilitate this. Um, that does give very detailed research based advice on if you've got an ac- if you've got academic, you know, here are some here are some strategies, here are some resources, and we can try to put that on our website mm-hmm. unless you've got the. The other thing I would add, <clears throat> excuse me, early on in the pandemic. Um, we started working very quickly with uh, educators in the field 
and really outlined priority learning standards. These are the building block standards. We have a lot of standards, the breadth and depth of the standards that we have in Illinois. And so there are priority learning standards that have been identified as these are foundational and where we should be spending more of our time. If we can get to the other ones, that's fine, but these are um, really the, the, the building blocks um, and there have been professional development across the entire state through regional offices of education with respect to the priority learning standards, in addition to the learning recovery best practices that was put out. It's been over a year now. I will just say, you know, 852 districts, I think one of the challenges, and you're speaking to it, Janice, is it's just really hard to, you know, um, across 852 districts. How do you get the word out? How do you make sure that there's as much press and consistency? I hate to bring this to you, Representative Musman, but you knew we were going to go there with this question I'm about to get at. I'm looking at you, Representative Davis, as well. Um, some of this is going to come down to resources. It is, It is as Dr. Ayala said, we have nearly $8 billion that came in from the feds. That was unbelievable. I, you shudder to think where we'd be without that. Um, and the good news is the districts were given enough time to actually, you know, spend that out, hopefully more prudently and thoughtfully. But it's going to run out and it's going to run out before the problems do and before some of the implications do. And so I think we are going to have to think about investing differently. Um, and I guess my question to you is, because I already asked, do you think you got the pitiful will we need to motivate people? Like, what's What's going to motivate? Like, what's the data point that when you looked at this, you were like, oh, my God, like the, the house is on fire. We've got to get going. What's it going to take? Because it's not like money grows on trees and there's a lot of demands on it. What's it going to take? I think that's a good question. I, d I don't have an easy answer. Um, I think it's going to be I, I think it's going to be pressure, pressure, pressure from all of you, pressure from uh, from home communities. I, I think on one hand, you're going to see caution because I, I think all the reports that we're looking at indicate right now that we are anticipating having less revenue coming in next year than we had this year. People's COVID spending habits were very unusual. And I think we're being very cautious and waiting for that to, to sort of tighten up. And we've made really good progress in paying down our debt and becoming more financially stable. And I think you're going to see a hesitancy around not overcommitting and not overspending and putting ourselves in a position where we may not have enough money in outlying years to keep up with our ambitious plans. So while I think there's going to be a, a lot of excitement and urgency to invest in all these things we know we need to invest in, there's also going to be some caution. Um, and, I would say that kind of first and foremost. I think, again, you're going to want to feel that you have the support of your general community. And I think just as we saw with the evidence-based funding model, every community is going to become very defensive of itself. So whether you're talking about a rural area, suburban area, or Chicago area, everyone wants to know that their, that their families are not going to lose out as you attempt to get money into other districts. And so you're going to see everyone react with caution uh, to any new idea that is introduced. And I think that we're going to have to do a good job of educating communities about what is happening here so that, again, you feel that you can bring them along with you. Uh, I think that you're still going to have concerns over uh, trying to attract and retain teachers. There is still a lot. I, I think that 
Let's be very honest. The pension system is still a very hot topic. I think it will become a hotter topic during the upcoming uh, election cycle. So if people are already feeling defensive and protective that perhaps teachers are better paid or have more secure retirements than what they are already seeing, and then to be told that we're going to continue to raise salaries for teachers to try and attract more people into this field, you're going to see defensiveness about that. Um, you know, again, I just, I, I think, again, you, you want to know that everyone is with you, but Remember, we didn't even live in the same pandemic, right? We, we were incredibly divided. And you're going to see very divided school board races, I think, as we head into the spring, too, over very serious issues about are they happy with how their board handled the pandemic? Are they happy about how their board is handling sensitive issues now, like whether or not they think CRT is being taught in their classrooms or whether or not they think social-emotional education is going to ruin their children or whether or not they're worried about where their children are going to go to the bathroom, right? So these, these things are all going to kind of come together as a package, and, and we're going to have to be able to address and confront them knowledgeably. I appreciate that, and particularly flagging that there's... Ooh, no. Is it back? It's not. Is it great? Okay. I will give this back, I promise. Um, so one of the things that I think comes shining forth from this information, I've heard all of you say, I hear it everywhere we go, you guys are living it, is we cannot just go back to business as usual. Nobody wants to go back to normal. It wasn't good enough then. It's certainly not good enough now. And my question is, my next set of questions are going to be, so what can we do differently? What are the ideas that are emerging? What are the areas for more attention and change? And I'm going to start with mine. <laughs> See if you agree. That was a terrible cackle. I sort of wish my, my, my microphone had been off for that. That was just terrible. Can you bleep that out of any follow-up on this? <laughs> I think that one of the things that we've got a moment here, and I, I'm interested whether you agree, and if you disagree, you are allowed to put your own on the table, and I'm going to start with you, uh, Superintendent Ayala, because I know this is an area close to your heart as well, is has to do with social and emotional learning and dealing with student well-being. Um, and again, I know we've got some champions. Um, Representative Ammon, Senator Lightford have, have put a lot of energy into the state having a blueprint. I think there's some good ideas on the table. I think the state, I'll brag for you since you didn't already brag on this, um, Dr. Ayala, the state put millions of dollars into making sure the teachers early in the pandemic had access to free training. Um, the Center for Childhood Resilience did an incredible job. I know some of them are in the room. And thousands of teachers signed up in the first couple of weeks alone for that training. So the need and the understanding is profound. Can we do things dramatically differently? And what are some of the things we need to do there, Dr. Ayala? Thank you, Robin. Um, first, I wanted to start off by saying, by, by offering a caution. Um, one of the things that uh, we did this year is we tried to work uh, with our legislators in uh, controlling the mandates. I know it's a sticky word, but somebody's got to say it, right? Um, <laughs> previous year, we had over 40 mandates come down to schools. And this past session, our message was we should not be putting forth the number of mandates, because our schools, our teachers, our leaders really need to be focused on recovery, on making sure that our students, our educators, our schools have what they need. And we literally were able to reduce those mandates by just under half from what they were before. So I say that to also say 
how do we get out of this pandemic and how do we bring our children, our classrooms, our schools to an even better place pre-pandemic? And it isn't about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are some good, effective, powerful practices that we need to continue and go deeper into. It's not always about just bringing in all of this new stuff because we all know it, it takes three to five years for change to really take hold and our children don't have that amount of time. And so that's that's just one thing I, I really had to get off of my chest. Um, I had the opportunity uh, before the pandemic to visit a high school um, in another state. It was a community learning center. And we're doing this in Illinois. We've done it in Illinois pre-pandemic, where the school was the hub of the community. And there were social services. There were clinics. That's communities and there schools were back there. Communities and schools background, yes. And that is the place where families, especially our marginalized families, our disenfranchised families, feel more comfortable going into the school. And if they can go into the school and they can talk to a counselor and they can talk to a social worker and they can see a practitioner, a medical practitioner, and it's one stop shop for the, for the students, for the family. I think that that's something that would go a very long way. And we've got some great models in the state of Illinois that we can take a look at. Uh, there has been an investment of over $80 million that we put forth from our agency set aside of emergency funding dedicated to providing additional funding for community-based organizations to partner with schools and create these community hubs. And I think that that's something that we really need to build upon um, and really customize based upon the needs of that particular community. So, um, Dr. Jackson, do you agree that that is an area that we can and should make real grains, or do you have a different leading candidate? No, no I you agree. Want to defy and I disagree agree with, with that, but I would add one area, um, one bright spot during the pandemic was the use of technology. There were challenges early on with getting that and disseminating it, as you outlined in the report. But one of the things that I often share with you know people still doing this work is that we should. Um, not lose any ground that we gained during that time. I remember when CPS was um, instituting the Skyline curriculum and we had like a two or three year plan to help train teachers and principals and, and, and students, I'm sorry, around how to use the system and how to do flip classrooms, all those things. And because they were thrown into the pandemic, kind of thrown into the deep, people learned quickly. And so I think um, <clears throat> taking advantage of that, I think that's going to allow us to see where learning gaps are quickly because there is a gap in data. And I also think there are some opportunities for acceleration. Um, one idea that um, I know we started in CPS and I believe is growing is increasing early high school opportunities using technology. So um, students could take more than algebra or uh, students could have access to high school classes if they were 
um, in regular, uh, in a, a, a regular school as opposed to the, uh, academic centers, which is right now the only place where you can get that access. And much of that is happening because they're leveraging technology. So I think that's the one thing I would say is that we learned a lot. Um, our, it's the future. Um, and I think it's a place where we can really close the gap if we continue to focus on it as much as we did during the pandemic. No, I appreciate that. It was one of the questions I was going to get to from Paul Davidkowski is on, you know, accelerating versus remediating that when you really want to recover, um, that's what you need to do is have more of those opportunities to jump ahead. Um, so I appreciate your speaking to that. Um, and representative Musman, I guess the same question for you, what is the area we don't want to go back to business as usual. What is top of mind for you that we can and must do differently that you think we've got a shot at and thoughts on that? Again, I think, I think you have to come back to, is this on? Okay. I think again, you, you, you come back to mental health, right? You know, again, if, if the student isn't, the student isn't capable of leaving their baggage at the door, and if they can't separate what's going on in their home lives, uh, enough to be able to settle down and learn, it's going to continue to be problematic. And I think that you're going to have, you, you have a lot of insecurity in their home life, right? You, you probably have a third of the public that wants to see more social emotional education in their school districts. They understand what it means and they definitely want that to continue and they want to be a supportive partner. You probably have another third that are pretty much in chaos back home. And you have parents who are not capable of regulating their own social emotional skills and therefore don't know how to help their students do that. And again, they're just trying to get through the basics of life. Um, One of my concerns is that we've lost a lot of students through housing insecurity. If you believe that your ability to attend that school is dependent on your address and you're just couch surfing and you think you can't go back to that school because you don't understand what McKinney-Vento is, then I think that's part of the reason we're losing kids. And I'm going to say you probably have about a third to a quarter of parents who actively believe that social emotional education in our schools will harm their students and they don't want any part of that. But again, I think, and, and again, we, we are seeing higher levels of anxiety, depression, and suicide ideation in all of our students. And again, that is a hurdle that we are just going to have to find a way to get over. And, it, and it's a hurdle that we see feeding into our colleges and our community colleges. We know that when our students are arriving on their campuses, they're not they're not ready to learn yet because they're still dealing with so much in their private lives and and you're going to come back to again how we spend our money when we look at what kind of staff do we need to help those kids with those issues it's not necessarily classroom staff and now we're going to have more conversations we have a lot of buzzwords coming out especially around election time about whether or not our schools are spending too much money on administration and not enough money in our classrooms but if we're going to talk about things that are not specifically academic we're going to have to talk about how we spend that money and make sure, again, that the community is supportive, that everyone understands where and why that money is being spent. See, they all agreed. (laughs) My cackle was justified. I feel so much better. There were several questions about, you know, dealing with social and emotional. Just one more from Marianne Woodward from Communities and Schools. We've got working in schools here. This is an all hands on deck moment. I think everybody knows that, that, that our agencies, our care providers, our universities, our community colleges, I'm hearing this so consistently are going to need to partner, partner, partner. This is not a, and there's no in, a single system or institution that's going to be able to get this all done. So appreciate those questions. Um, had one other or several other questions from a couple of folks about our students who have, um, who are diverse learners and who were working with IEPs. Talk about a challenging moment in time, um, when things break down. How did that go? How, how would you rate, um, the, our ability to make sure that those learners got what they needed, um, and that there are, you know, 
things in place to make sure that we're catching kids up, particularly um, students with IEPs and who had some of those issues. And I think that starts with you, Dr. Ayala. Yes, thank you. I, I want to start off by really acknowledging our educators, particularly our educators that serve our students who, are, who have diverse learning needs. Um, I ran across and had conversations with leaders and educators during the pandemic of, you know, the speech and language pathologists going to the child's home through a window and providing services. Um, the social worker, um, you know, just just doing so many extraordinary things to try to meet the needs of the students. And I would be remiss if I didn't say there were other instances and other areas where it was near impossible um, because you had staff who were also being affected by the pandemic, who had family members uh, that they were losing to the pandemic and were also grieving and being impacted by the pandemic. So it's been very, very difficult. Uh, but I think that we are starting to re recapture some of that, those services. We're starting to have um, IEP convenings with our parents and brainstorming with our parents to figure out other supportive ways that uh, resources can be provided to the students. So that particular population of students was very, very much impacted. Um, and I would acknowledge that, but at the same time would want to acknowledge that our educators and our leaders did cartwheels to try to provide services during this most difficult time, particularly at the onset of the pandemic. All right, I'm going to move us to our last question, not because there aren't 20,000 more, but because time does not permit for more. So our last question, and um, Dr. Jackson, this is going to be for you, though, uh, Representative Musselman, I'm going to give you a chance to speak to it because I think there's a state piece to this. And this is from Natalie Neris, uh, Dr. Natalie Neris, from Kids for Chicago. Apart from the pandemic, financial resources and other socioeconomic and social factors that impact student outcomes, how will we need to think about the crisis of teacher quality? Mm-hmm the actual pedagogy of teaching, and what advice would you give parents who want to see teacher priority prioritized? What's it going to take? And so I'm hearing both a pipeline numbers, but also a making sure that teachers are really ready. And I want to offer one data point. We weren't able to get into it here. We will be coming back. Coming into the pandemic, you know, Illinois had actually started to make some very smart investments to grow its pipeline and to diversify its pipeline. We actually doubled the diversity of the pipeline of the candidates coming in in the last 10 years. We actually increased the number of people coming into programs. We added 6,000 positions during COVID and filled them without increasing our vacancy rate, which is actually kind of phenomenal. That said, that doesn't mean it's not still a huge issue. We're all waiting with breathless anticipation, you know, bated breath on what's happening right now and what the world's going to look like in the fall. And you can't talk to a district who isn't deeply concerned about numbers, but the quality issue as well about our teachers ready for this. What can we do? And Janice, what would you say? Yeah. Well, I think the, I think one group, the Hunt Institute that we both, um, you know, engage with is, is working on teacher quality issues. But if we're being honest, that along with accountability and a lot of these other things that were kind of fiery reform topics 10 years ago have kind of fallen to the wayside. And so I think that the challenge is twofold. First, you need people, which is hard, and you need people who are qualified. And sometimes when you have gaps, you end up taking people who may or may not have some certain qualifications because, you know, 
know, any of us that have worked in schools know you need people. So at the end of the day, at some point, you know, there is a level, I don't want to say desperation, but you do get to that point. That said, I think another area that we need to focus on is the quality of preparation in the pre-service programs. I think we need to revisit the um, utility of programs like Teach for America and others that, you know, people are on different sides of the the debate on whether or not those programs are effective, but you can't solve the issues that I see on the horizon um, by just looking at traditional programming. So um, Golden Apple, there's so many things we're doing. CPS, you know, uh, implemented uh, Teach uh, Chicago program to take uh, ESP. Uh, those are the education support staff folks to get degrees to go back and teach. So we got to try a bunch of different things in order to get more people in the pipeline. But if I take a step back, Beyond the technical part, like getting people to want to enroll, go through a program, successfully complete it, we have to do an examination of how we talk about education. If you think about the way teachers and educators, not just teachers, educators of all uh, ends of the spectrum were treated during the pandemic, it begs the question, why on earth would anybody do this? Um, if we continue to just rely on teachers' uh, goodwill, most people teach because they care and they want to make a difference. So it's okay not to pay them adequately. If we continue to do those things, it, it's just going to get harder. And so that needs to be addressed along with some of these tech, technical and tactical things that can help us. It should shock everybody that half the people who work in the early childhood task force are eligible for welfare. Mm-hmm. I want you to pause on that for just a moment. So we have a crisis in getting people in, and half the people who work just based on their wages are eligible for welfare. You can't solve it without dealing with those issues. And that was going to be my last, so Representative Musselman, last word to you. We wanted to do some creative things and make sure that we both push hard to get more teachers, but make sure that they really are qualified and ready to go, because our kids need that more now than ever. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we have to talk about the teachers that we that we can create coming through the pipeline and get them to be to be newly educated. But I also think that we need to talk about the teachers that we already have. How do we retain them? How do we make them feel successful and supportive and capable of managing what's happening in their classroom? And and as we talk about sort of the state side of that, we talk about, you know, those professional development hours. We know that it's when we, you know, as Dr. Ayala mentioned, you know, the state mandates are very cumbersome and bulky, and so are the professional development hours, and they're very difficult for teachers really to use. Now, I know that there are some stakeholders in the audience here today, um, and we are having a conversation about how we can rethink them in a way that's more practical and more functional, but certainly if we want our classroom teachers to be more aware of social-emotional skills, of trauma-based informed teaching, all of these things, we need to make sure that they, they have that, and there is going to be a cost to that. And so we, we need to be able to make sure that it is practical to implement and that we actually are giving schools the financial resources that they need to do that. See how nice and steel spine she is. I told you, I told you. So I just, we, I would love to do more, but I, it is time, time, time. But can I just thank our panel, Dr. Ayala, Dr. Jackson, Representative Musman. Thank you guys so much for being here.